The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So welcome everyone. Good morning. We've already experienced quite a bit of impermanence this morning as we have rain and sun and humidity. I'd like, um, I'll just briefly introduce myself and then um, see how much we can cover today on this topic of um, a conundrum of self-care, compassion, and selflessness. I think this is an area that sometimes is confusing for us Dharma practitioners um, when it comes to this relationship between taking good care of ourselves and then hearing these teachings on selflessness. Like, what does that mean? So um, my name, um, some of us know each other, some of us are our new friends. Um, my name is Mara Young, and I'm a longtime member of this community, and I've been trained as a community Dharma leader through Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and I've been practicing um, probably for about 35 years, and I love the Dharma. And I'm also um, a psychotherapist that integrates these practices into my work. And I teach uh, meditation and integrative psychotherapy in a number of contexts, including uh, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at the U. So this is a poem from, um, this is a reading from the Buddha I'd like to start with. The Buddha said, Searching all directions with your awareness, you will find no one dearer than yourself. In the same way others are fiercely dear to themselves, you shouldn't hurt others if you love yourself. So the Buddha is telling us that when we search, no matter where we search, and there's no one dearer than ourselves, and that when we hold ourselves dear, then we're, we're not likely to harm others. This is a poem I'd like to share with you called The Mathematics of the Heart that I think uh, Michael Bratnick um, talks about this quality of an expanded sense of self. There is a mathematics of the heart beyond exponents and imaginary numbers where love raised to a higher power goes to infinity in a beat. And a physics of connection outside of gravity and superstrings, where the unit, the net of unity, turns from theory to certainty in a glance. And a study of self within an expanding universe where true knowing fills the surrounding emptiness in a breath. A study of self with an expanding universe where true knowing fills the surrounding emptiness in a breath. So we have our capacity in any moment to rest in that awareness, our true home, with the spaciousness that's not so much contracted in this tight ball of pain and problems and selfing and um, all the ways that we might uh, struggle with a limited sense of who we are. 
and that actually when we have more space, as some of us have discovered through our practice, to be with our experience, we can actually have more love of ourselves. We can smile at our conditioning. We can um, have compassion towards our struggles and our suffering. We can observe a little more, a little space of awareness that mindfulness allows to observe the passing show, the thoughts, the feelings, the the um, comparing mind. The Buddha said that the cultivation of loving and kindness and compassion is all of our practice. The cultivation of loving and kindness and compassion is all of our practice. I came across some, um, um, what I thought was rather um, profound and startling information about compassion. Usually, we think about being compassionate as focusing on the other. We're filled with empathy, and we want to focus outwards. However, there's research, and Joan Halifax, who is a Zen teacher and also a a medical anthropologist, has been working with researchers, um, a professor in Greece, international researchers, and she says that, that actually that a lot of us suffer from what's called pathological altruism. So we see all these horrific things in the world, right? Um, we can just name some of them. They're happening every day. Um, and we get so overwhelmed. We actually feel inside and take on the suffering of the world and it overwhelms us and we our systems, and then we get traumatized by that. We can get traumatized because what we have lost is that spaciousness. So actually, she says that in her work, they don't even use the word um, compassion fatigue because it's not compassion that causes the fatigue. It's this kind of empathetic, over arousal where we actually lose a sense of ourselves as being this spacious capacity to be compassion to be aware I don't know if this makes sense I'll try to explain a little more I was I had to read it over and over to to really kind of take it in so when we are other focused Um, we're not so much able to witness and walk alongside with another person. It's like we're, we're taking on that suffering. So actually our capacity to experience compassion, which actually means to walk alongside with, to accompany, to bear witness, our capacity gets lost, right? And get this. We actually, because it's so unbearable, we want to fix it, right? We want to do something about it. And then we're, um, we're basically trying to get rid of it, which is the opposite of compassion. So the very thing is out of our own discomfort, like I can't stand it. I can't stand to watch this person's pain or grief or whatever it is. And then I want to get rid of my own discomfort. 
So then my capacity to be compassionate and just bear witness and be with them without trying to fix it diminishes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so our capacity to be able to rest in that awareness um, and to be able to bear that suffering without getting lost in it means developing this capacity to um, rest there and to let the compassion be there. It doesn't mean that we don't feel it. It doesn't mean that we're not touched or moved or tears don't come. We're still feeling it, but we're not. It's our relationship to the suffering, our own and others, that changes. Um, I had a little example of this um, um, yesterday that I did not expect, and I don't know what's in the air because uh, another uh, dear friend had a similar experience um, recently as well. But I was um, leading a day-long um, mindfulness-based stress reduction meditation retreat yesterday, and there was about 25 people there, and we were getting settled in. I just talked about noble silence, and we were all getting settled. And, um, and then um, I started to lead the first sit, and I started a guided meditation, and I'm sitting there, we're all in a circle, and my eyes are closed. And all of a sudden, I just opened my eyes, and I saw this woman fall back in her chair and faint. At first I thought she'd fallen asleep, but it was like, you know, how your body, or you just know something's wrong. So it was just this moment of like seeing, watching this, and then popping up. And so I popped over there, and then I realized she had passed out. And, um, and then, and then um, you know, everyone's sitting there in silence, and and then the whole thing shifted, and I. But they were they the people in the room held the noble silence. It was incredible. I said, "Will someone call 911?" Someone got their phone out. Soon, two other people came over. One happened to be a retired doctor, and one a retired EMT. And the next thing we know, we had her on the floor. The yoga mat came out. The blankets. Everybody seamlessly responded to the situation at hand. Fortunately, she came to rather quickly. She had some medical conditions. Um, the EMTs, I don't know if the bodhisattvas put a spell on them, they seamlessly, quietly floated in, these gentle men. And just the whole thing just unfolded. And then I just said to everyone, okay, now just go out and continue sending loving kindness to yourself and to the person. And let's just do some walking meditation. It was incredible. Everyone held the space of compassion and presence. I, I was so inspired. I could hardly believe it. Nobody went into da-da-da-da, and I said, just watch if panic is arising. <laughs> I was watching panic arising. <laughs> but but it, it just was like a fleeting moment. And then... And then, you know, she wheeled out, I came out, I rang the bell, and we went on, and we had a, had a lovely retreat, and we, we offered loving kindness and, and just recentered ourselves. And I, I mean, and, and a lot of these people, it's their first retreat, they've barely meditated, you know, other than some of their classes, and, and, and no one um, broke the container of the practice. 
And it was our practice. This is our practice. In fact, I said, as we settled back into our seats, I said, this is our practice. This is how we get through the, the difficult and the challenging. So fortunately, um, it was, um, it, it, you know, it unfolded the way it did. But what else to do? What else to do? So I have some um, teachings here I'd like to share with you briefly. The morning goes so quickly um, that I also want to leave time for us to reflect. But um, the Buddha actually, um, and maybe some of you know this, uh, he taught what was called from the the teachings of a handful of leaves. People were asking him, I mean, you know, human beings want to know, is there a self? Do I exist? Is there not a self? You know, tell me the goods. Give me the goods. And they're bugging the Buddha for this. And what does the Buddha do? He just picks up a handful of leaves and says, this is what I teach. I teach about suffering and the freedom from suffering. That's it. You know, <laughs> He's not going to get into uh, theological whatever the word is, epistological, existential discussion with you about whether you have a self or not. He says, okay, is this leading to freedom? Is this contracting you into a limited self, a sense of self? Is this causing you suffering? Or is this bringing you freedom? Is this skillful action or is it unskillful? So um, the perception of self is an action, actually. It's an activity called eye-making and my-making. The perception of not-self is an activity called um, not-self-contemplation. The question becomes, when is a perception of self-skillful action that leads to long-term welfare and happiness, and when is it a perception that is not-self a skillful, sorry, when is the perception of not-self a skillful action that leads to long-term welfare and happiness? So, how we approach this question, what if we approach it, as Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, is more of an activity, right? It's not this solid thing, but it's an activity, which is what a human being is, right? All our cells are moving, all our, all our blood. We're never, we're never the same. Our thoughts are moving. Everything's moving and changing. So the, the sense of self... Maybe you had a moment in the meditation where you felt more spacious. Maybe you, had, you, know, maybe you were sitting there struggling with a story that was playing over in your mind. I was, uh, sometimes a show I watched on TV was repeating. You know? And then sometimes it was just very spacious. You know? and we, so there it's happening, right there, the activity of selfing and non-selfing. Um, I, think, I think we... You know, we tend to freak out more around this whole not-self thing. Like, what does that mean? Well, in this right here, right now, we have both activities going on. Um, it's, it, it, and, and, and I think we're, we're afraid of it because when we start thinking about it, we think, oh my gosh, am I really here? Am I not here? But, what, but the Buddha is advising us not to think about it, but to simply be mindful of our actions. And the more that we develop our capacity, our concentration, our capacity to observe our experience with mindfulness, to be present in our experience, to um, 
direct the mind and, and our activities towards what's skillful, um, we naturally begin to incline ourselves towards this more spacious freedom. At least that's how I'm um, understanding it at this time. So um, I love this concept. I was laughing to myself when I was reading some of this because um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, um, who's a, quite a, a brilliant teacher in our time, he lives in California at the Meta Institute, he says, the idea of not-self is also a strategy we use many times that we've learned and that um, it, it's a strategy. It's just a perception. Um, I have a couple more things I want to cover, so I'm going to skip to something here. Um, the Buddha, there's a, there's a wonderful, a couple little stories and examples where um, the Buddha talks about the importance of a healthy sense of self and self-care. And uh, this is from the Dhammapada. Your own self is your own mainstay. Who else could be your mainstay? With yourself well-trained, you obtain a mainstay hard to obtain. If your pride or self-worth is built on the idea that you're always willing to learn, then it opens many possibilities for developing more skill. It's the best kind of pride there is, the most useful basis for eye-making and mind-making. So actually, a healthy self-esteem gives us the confidence to be able to learn, to be open. You know, if we have a low self-worth and we don't take care of ourselves, and I want to say a little bit about healthy boundaries and some tips for that, because that's an area that we often struggle with, is that we're not so able to learn from our experience and to direct ourselves skillfully. So, so the Buddha himself encourages us to have a healthy sense of pride. And, and also, I see this, I see this as a therapist, you probably see this in your own life, that when we see ourselves doing something unskillful, if we don't have a healthy sense of eye-making, a sense of being able to learn from experience, we can't learn when we go into shame, right? We, we go into a sense of shame, so we can't really, it's hard to look at those places where we're off, where we're off, where we're out of balance, where we screwed up, to use a gentler word than you know what. So, because um, <laughs> we go, oh no, ah. and then we, it, it's actually, how, ma how many of us have experienced that, right? Where it's hard to learn. You, you, it's hard to own up even. I know when my child was young, and you often hear this from young children, and there's an example in some, some of those Buddhist stories, like, so tell me, like, Rahula himself didn't want to fess up to his dad, the Buddha, you know, it's like, you know, like, you know, young kids will sometimes lie, right? Well, did you take the candy bar? No, me? No, I didn't take the cookie jar. I didn't go to the candy. You know, you know, like, you don't want to be caught. But when we have a healthy sense of worth, we can catch ourselves. We can bear being caught. We can say, oh, we might even say, thank you for catching me. Hopefully, we all have good friends that can catch us <laughs> so we don't run away with ourselves. So, um... This kind of pride that, that can teach us a use of a sense of 
where we can have a healthy sense of shame. He talks about moral shame, meaning we want to recognize when we've been out of alignment with our values and truth. I think shame is such a loaded word for Westerners. This healthy shame actually is very helpful on the path because, because it enables you to see our mistakes as mistakes, and it makes you want to stop making them. The, the Buddha also teaches other ha, ha, uh, healthy attitudes, and I love this teaching as well, and our time is flying. Um, and Tanisaro Bhikkhu puts it this way. He says, negotiate with your committee, your inner committee. Negotiate with... Um, the, the skillful members of the committee. <laughs> Win them over to the path to true happiness. In the factors of the path, this comes under right effort. The ability to generate the desire within yourself to do um, right things or healthy things. How many of us have an inner committee? <laughs> okay. So, finally, these instructions teach an important lesson about happiness, that it's possible to find happiness that also offers happiness to others. In other words, your happiness does not depend on the pain of others. It's gained through generosity, virtue, goodwill, and it also fosters their happiness, too. And this way, the line between your happiness and my happiness is no longer sharp. It starts to expand. And that's also part of that expanded sense of self, that we can open to the happiness, like those boundless qualities that we chant, that's available to us. So partially this talk was also inspired by um, Amatanasati that was here last week, very clearly telling us to put the bat down and to um, have this self-love and a healthy esteem and to learn to work with the parts of us that need healing or have suffered in very skillful ways. And I loved how she talked about it. You know, how do you deal with the two-year-old consciousness? You don't preach the Dharma. You address the two-year-old. You know, you reparent that two-year-old and you love her. The Buddha, um, I want to give a couple more quick things here. Um, the Buddha comforted um, and gave um, um, encouragement um, to a monk who was feeling despair, like many of us do, who was thinking of leaving um, the monastic life and going back to lay life. And the Buddha encouraged him to see his, his worth, to see that he was capable of continuing to walk the path. And then um, Anatta encouraged a nun. Um, so they, they were actually... You know, our spiritual friends, our sanghas, see our goodness. They see our capacity, even when we don't. And so, back in the time of the Buddha, the Buddha himself and Anatta, his closest disciple, and others, they would go to other people, you know, just like maybe, you know, people do those 12-step calls and they help someone and they say, you can do this, we've done this too, you know. And and this is how we, we help ourselves see and develop that healthy sense of self. A couple things on boundaries. I have some tips on healthy boundaries, and then I'll close. Um, I had everything labeled so perfectly. Here we go. Here we go. Um, so the re why 
the healthy boundaries goes with the self-care. Um, I, I was at a meeting the other day, and it, we, were, we were planning um, an event for the Buddha's birthday, and um, the, it came up right then because someone um, lives nearby, and they could come early and d different things like that. And someone joked and said, well, you, you can do the Dharma and have healthy boundaries. You know, because we have the sense that we have to serve others at the expense of ourselves, and then that is also where we, we get um, uh, crispy. And, and then we, we have less, we, have, we, have, we need to develop that healthy sense of self. So um, it takes time, determination, the process to develop healthy boundaries, and I'll just give you a couple of thoughts here instead of the whole list. Um, so when you start to feel doubt, fear, or fears of hurting another person's feelings, when you start to feel anger, resentment, or you find yourself <coughs> complaining a lot about someone or something, then you probably need to set a boundary. <coughs> Listen to yourself. Determine what you need to say. And then in as few words possible, without apologizing or getting angry for the body, the boundary you're setting or feeling guilty, just say to yourself that you have a right to take good care of yourself and do not let anxiety or low self-esteem prevent you from taking care of yourself. So that's a lot of a mash of stuff. And um, um, maybe just sit for a moment and then I'd like to close with the reading and open it up for any of your thoughts is we reflect on this relationship of caring for ourselves, of compassion, the self in others, and of this, our nature, our, the selflessness, the spacious awareness This is an example, and then I'll quote from the Dhammapada. It is as if you're a bird in a cage. One wall of the cage is a door. If you cling to the other walls, you stay stuck in the cage. But if you cling to the door, then when the door is open, you can fly away. In the same way, when you cling to the path, when the path comes together, it leads to the opening where you gain freedom. The door swings open, and you're free to fly wherever you want. In the words of the Dhammapada, when you've reached that point, your path, like that of the birds through space, can't be traced. So you're free. You leave no footprints in the sky. You're so free that you leave no footprints in the sky. few moments for any comments or 
questions before um, our lovely kids come in and, and teach, uh, teach us about healthy self-esteem and love? Yes. Oh, they're here already. Is there one question while they're piling in? You can come in, but we're going to ask to have a couple questions. Yes, sir. That's not really a question. It's just um, when you're talking about Pardon, say that last part? It's, we're taking, we're emphasizing the way that we're taking the suffering of the personal. Yes, yes. Yes, and we've lost our center. We've, got, we've, we've gotten so lost in, in it that we're not really able to be present with it. It's just like our own emotions, too. We get so lost in it. Um, that's where we often need someone to bear witness and hold the space for us because we're so caught. Exactly. Yes. Mayor, thank you. Um, I just wanted to share with you and others that uh, I happened to listen to Joan Halifax's TED Talk on Compassion oh, this week. And one of the things I wanted to just restate was Please. she said the one of the most important things is not to be attached to the outcome. Yes. And that's a good teaching. <laughs> Thanks. And she gave this a talk um, by Krista Tippett on being. So you can listen to the whole talk as well is the TED Talk on this information. So kids, thanks for coming. Are you going to sing our meditation song? Shelly had asked me, Mira, to help lead the song. Oh, please. Of, please. So I'm going to give it my best shot. Oh, absolutely. I, I would appreciate compassion. Oh. <laughs> I know you guys, I know, I know plenty of you probably know it. We've done this song many times. Um, we've had a mic on in a while. Yeah, so we're going to do Breathing In, Breathing Out, one of our old favorites. Okay, so. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. I for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.